This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. A lot of stuff's been going on in true crime and we like i missed a couple of weeks of stuff in the feed and this will be the first episode back and it's not that we didn't record anything it's just that i didn't get a chance to edit it that you know weird things happen in threes but i had uh like a little thing i went to do where i was writing uh something that's sort of true crime based it, like i was getting a lot of inspiration from the murdoch trial um and then um, I had like a series of three deaths right in a row and um, and I got COVID in the middle of that. Uh, but the three deaths really threw me off for a minute. Um, one of those was a, another podcaster uh, and that's uh, John Ayler. He uh, has the podcast, uh, have you seen, uh, where's Teresa or have you seen Teresa? And he used to work with uh, my wife at one point. Um, and then someone who, who is, big deal. My kid's family passed away from an overdose. Um, he was actually my nephew by marriage, but I'm no longer married to that family. There's someone I was married to a long time ago. Um, he was very, he, I consider him young. He's younger than me, but, um, that was very tragic. Uh, and then I got news that, um, and I don't think I've talked about this on here before, but, uh, obviously I've been married before, uh, a couple times. And I had a, a child with my first wife who lives with me full time and is about to graduate high school. So there's all the senior things going on. But then, um, I was married briefly to someone else. Uh, and I'm married now to another person. Um, but the person that I was married to briefly, uh, was found, uh, to have passed away, uh, some time ago. Um, and it really threw me off for a little bit. She, uh, you hear stories about people where, they pass away and they're not found for some time. Uh, sometimes it's more nefarious and it's true crime related. Uh, in this instance, it's not, um, it's sort of substance related. And it was a really weird thing that, that happened. Um, and it's, I don't know, it sort of threw everything else off for a few weeks, but now we're back. We have a couple of, I'm going to call the next, this episode and the next couple of episodes are sort of the interlude. Um, cause we've already recorded another serial killer and I can't just drop it in the way I want to, because we are going to talk to one, possibly two people uh, for interviews who are sort of experts sort of surrounding that serial killer. I don't want to say the serial killer exactly, but like all the things that happened adjacently to them. And I wanted to be able to put all those together, but I had a few items for today uh, related to the origins of serial killers. And then I, I want to talk about um, a piece of media that I made you watch. Um, I guess we could do the media first, if that's okay with you. Yes, that's fine. I had you watch the, it's, it's, it's actually an older documentary. It's some, um, I think it's 15 years old, give or take. Uh, it's a documentary about several crimes. It's called Dear Zachary, a letter to a son about his father by a guy named uh, Kirk Kane. And you saw it? I did. So I, I had seen this some time ago, and I sort of for, forgotten about it. 
um, which I don't know how I forgot about it, but I did. And it came up in my feed as like a suggested watch. And I was like, oh my gosh, I haven't seen that in so long. So I pulled it back up and I watched it again. And I don't know how many people have seen it because it, it has weird timing. Um, it was released in 2008. And I think it's been on Netflix at one point. It's not there anymore. Where did you say you found it? I watched it on YouTube. Okay. It was like on some premium service for me where it was like continue watching, watch next. And I don't know which one it was, but, uh, it is on YouTube. The whole thing is on there. Okay. The whole thing. So what this documentary is about, it's about a crime that occur, uh, that occurs, like it opens with a crime that occurred, uh, quite a while ago. It actually happened in November of 2001. So I'll, I'll sort of start with that because that's like the kickoff point. Uh, it concerns a man named Andrew Bagby. Uh, had you ever heard of him before? Well, I'm not sure. I, I can't. I don't know if I'd seen or uh, known anything about the whole that whole story. But I was surprised. So it seemed familiar, but yet I couldn't have possibly known everything about it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, um, I'm going to tell the story, but just in case you're going to check out and watch the documentary, which is totally cool if people do that, because um, you should. Um, I will say that it is probably the most heart-wrenching documentary I've ever watched. I would um, have to agree with that. It I mean, is, <laughs> it's tough. Um, I was literally, I had tears streaming down my face. Yes. Yeah, and and I've seen some, I've seen some that are close to this, but this one is different. So starting with Andrew Bagby, Andrew Bagby was born in California in September of 1973. For most of his life, he is known as being sort of a very gregarious person. He's a huge presence, both in photos and videos, um, and audio in this documentary. Um, and where the documentary sort of starts out, like it, it introduces us to him and it introduces us to the fact that he's a medical student in, uh, like the early two thousands. So in August of 2000, um, he, hold on, let me make sure I, I say all this correctly. Cause I don't want to give away like the ending yet till the, till I get through this. Andrew starts dating someone. It's actually in 1999. At the time, he is studying in his third year at what's known as Memorial University up in Newfoundland. He ends up graduating and he lands a surgical residency at the uh, Sunny Upstate Medical University in Syracuse. So Sunny is the state university of New York, like university system, but he's specifically at the Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. And he's engaged to be married at the time. And the person that he's engaged to be married to, she ends up going a different direction. Uh, Her name is Shirley Turner. And Shirley ends up going to, I think it's Iowa. And she is working there. I never really understand what she has going on. Job wise, is she a, is she just like a 
It's my understanding that they met in medical school and that she was doing a residency just like he was. Okay, so in my head, for some reason, I was thinking she like didn't quite make it, but that what you just said makes more sense now. That was how I understood it. Okay. I, it I could be I could have misunderstood something. It doesn't get into a whole lot of her career aspirations. Yeah, so they're both at Memorial University. And they're both in med school. They don't talk about what her actual job is, but she's certainly working um, in Iowa uh, in something within the medical field. And so, I believe they call her doctor, like Dr. Yeah, Shirley. That, okay, so we'll say Dr. Shirley Turner for the moment. She and Andrew Bagby are trying to have like a long-distance relationship, but they're they end up in two like very different places. According to Shirley, she visited Andrew in Syracuse seven times. He only came out to Iowa once. Now, during one of the visits where Shirley goes up to Syracuse, the police believe that she broke into Andrew's apartment. Now in the fall of 2001, Andrew moves down to Latrobe, Pennsylvania, and he started a residency at a family practice there under the supervision of Dr. Simpson, is how they address this person. At that time, Shirley leaves her job in July, even though she has a 10-year contract with whatever medical uh, uh, facility she's with, and she moves to a different place in Iowa and she gets hired on there by a, a new company. So she's at one company, um, and then she moves to another company. She's either a doctor or she's some kind of high-level medical practitioner within like the health system there. In October of 2001, Shirley obtained a permit to buy a 22 caliber Phoenix Arms handgun. And she bought ammunition, and she learned... Uh, to, to use his handgun. The same time period, at the end of 2001, she started to exhibit some possessive behavior towards Bagby, even though he lives in Pennsylvania and she lives in Iowa, which I don't, I mean, you can get further apart than that, but that's pretty far apart. It's our, a, quite a drive. <laughs> yeah, a flight, a drive, it's a, it's a lot of not fun, long-distance stuff to keep that relationship going. On October the 13th, Shirley tells Andrew that she's pregnant. And Andrew agrees to talk about the pregnancy during a friend's wedding that he is scheduled to attend. So Shirley visits him in Pennsylvania in October 2001. And the two were arguing because he was starting to see a new girlfriend. On November 3rd, 2001, Shirley tells Andrew that she'd been lying about the pregnancy in an effort to keep Andrew sort of on the hook. Andrew gets mad, and he drives Shirley to this small airport up there in Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania. He breaks up with her, like, officially, and he puts her on a plane, and she heads back to Iowa. On November 4th, 2001, Shirley makes three phone calls to Andrew's uh, little, uh, I think it's a duplex based on the pictures in the video, but his little place that he lives at in Littrow, Pennsylvania. At around 1 o'clock p.m. her local time, 
Shirley starts out on a 16-hour drive from Iowa to Pennsylvania in her little Toyota RAV4. In the early morning on the 5th of November, she gets into an argument with Andrew outside of his residence, right across the street. Like he, like they show it in the documentary. He walks like not even 500 feet from his house, his house to work. Andrew goes into work. He's upset. And he tells the doctor supervising him that Shirley has shown up. And the doctor says, do not meet with her in private, like only go with someone else. Andrew says that he would come over to the doctor's house to talk about um, Shirley after he has a, like a final chat with her and breaks up with her for good that evening. Andrew never shows up. And apparently Shirley drove home and began to leave messages on Andrew's answering machine. And by the way, for some reason, this documentary is cool because it has things I haven't you know, thought about in a long time. It has voicemail messages like on our answering machine messages. For some reason, they have recorded so many phone calls. Like everybody in this records so many phone calls. And they actually have like tapes and things that we don't have anymore, really. Yeah, but they're able to like like they're able to basically take us through this minute by minute. That's one of the reasons I recommend this to people. It is very interesting perspective. I think it's very late nineties, early two thousands esque, right? It really is. So the next morning on November the sixth of two thousand one, Andrew's body is found at Keystone State Park in Derry Township, Pennsylvania. He's found laying next to the day-use parking lot there. He had been shot five times in the face, the chest, the buttocks, and the back of the head with 22 caliber bullets. Uh, Dr. Simpson, among other people that a lot of them talk in the, the documentary, they immediately tell the Pennsylvania State Police about what's been going on with Shirley Turner. She claimed that she had been home, she'd been in bed sick, but her cell phone and internet record showed that she had made all of these calls back and forth while she was in Latrobe. And then when she got back from Latrobe, she had been accessing her email and apparently some auctions that she was watching for items on eBay at Andrew's home computer. And that she had used his home phone line to call her work and tell them that she would be sick that day. She gets confronted with this evidence, and she says that she meet she met with Andrew at the Keystone State Park, but that he had put a gun in his trunk, and that is where her gun is. She said that like Andrew had taken it from her, but she then told the person who had been her shooting instructor that the gun had been stolen. She her story is not adding up, and they the Pennsylvania State Police doubled down on how they're investigating it. While they're interviewing Turner's shooting instructor, um, he explained that her handgun would eject live rounds during lessons, and they wanted to get a feel for whether what they found near the crime scene would line up with what he knew about uh, Shirley's gun. And the reason was during 
uh, the shooting of Andrew, it had popped out the, the spent cartridges and it had also popped out in between the spent cartridges an unspent round, just sort of a defect with the gun that it would sometimes skip rounds and you, uh, it, it was either jamming or was on the verge of jamming and it would pop the live round out. They had found one where it was an unspent round next to his body and um, casings aren't really talked about. So I don't know if they had picked them up or what. A woman in Derry reported having seen Andrew's car and had also seen Shirley's little RAV4 that she had driven cross country in about 10 minutes after Andrew made his last phone call to Dr. Simpson. That same person had reported the fact that the Toyota was parked in those same spots alone the following morning. There was a box of condoms found in Shirley's apartment that matched the lot number of a box purchased by Andrew in Pennsylvania on the night of the breakup. Like she bought a, he bought a multi-pack of condoms that had a matching serial number across three boxes. And somehow Shirley has one of the boxes in her apartment. It's a weird thing, but it ties her to it all. What? I don't know that I understand what's happening there. (laughs) So it's like a, um, it's like if you go to the drugstore and you buy a, 36 condoms, but they're in three 12 packs, like 12. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. But my question is like, um, there's no question she was there. Right, right, right. They're just using it to kind of show her. We know, like we've, we, we, we know that you were doing this. So in Shirley's apartment, they also had different, uh, directions that have been printed out including i show they showed this in there a map quest printout I, I have not used map quest in so long but they I used had, to have those all the time before gps yeah like I, I remember printing like different things out so i could get places the police are trying to put this together where they have a rock solid case they've got all these search warrants but no arrest warrants yet and when they go to get her she's disappeared And that's because on November 12, 2001, Shirley left Iowa and she flew up to Toronto. I don't know if I mentioned this part. Shirley has kids. Shirley like had multiple children ahead of meeting Andrew. They don't talk about them a lot in the documentary, but they do come up at the end of the documentary. Uh, And it's also not any less heart wrenching, but she's got her older son with her when she goes up to uh, Toronto, November. This is all November 12, 2001. The Pennsylvania state police contact the Royal Newfoundland, um, constabulary or the police agency there and their intelligence unit, they start following Shirley Turner. And on the 2nd of December, they seize her trash and they discover that she has thrown out ultrasounds. So this ultrasound had been taken sometime in November, but it would have been like a time when she had been with Andrew. So they end up arresting her on December the 12th and they start extradition proceedings. However, there's a woman up there. Her name is Justice Gail Welsh. And she really believed in Shirley Turner. 
Uh, Turner at this point would have been around 40 years old. She gives this long spiel and they actually kind of poke a little fun at her in the documentary, which I kind of understand. Um, but her spiel is basically this. I believe that her actions are serious and she should definitely go face those charges. But I believe that they're not a threat to society because I think she was angry at Andrew Bagby and only would hurt Andrew Bagby. So she lets her go. These are murder charges. But she basically puts her on a very large bond. And that bond is around $75,000 Canadian. Um, Shirley puts up property or bond. She turns in her passports. And then she's made to pay weekly visits to the police station. And she has to sign a promise not to leave the area. And she has to agree not to attempt to contact the victim's family. I'm not 100% sure, but I think there was something in there where she was supposed to have some kind of contact with a therapist or a psychiatrist. But I got that mixed up because the person who was posting her bail, uh, John Doucette, he was all, he was a psychiatrist. So I couldn't tell if they were saying it was him or if they were saying she was supposed to have some kind of counseling while it's going on. Well, they discover at this time that uh, Shirley is pregnant with Andrew's child. So the extradition case turns into not only an extradition case, but also a multi-jurisdictional child custody case. Andrew's parents, David and Kathleen, they end up moving to Newfoundland, to St. John's. And they start fighting for custody of their grandchild. And the grandchild is the Zachary of the title. And the entire documentary is almost like a love letter to Zachary so that Zachary's, uh, like his, his relatives in the, his early years who were friends and family of Andrew can basically like tell Andrew's story in a way that Zachary later on can watch it and know his dad. Would you agree? That's what they're kind of doing. Yes, um, I believe they even say that before the memories faded too much. Yeah. Uh, because one of the friends realized that, you know, memories of people do fade. And so he started putting it together as a tribute, you know, for his friend um, and, you know, for th his child that the child would never meet him because he had been murdered. Yeah, and... Because of that, there's this really sort of scrapbooky, home movie, nostalgic feel to this documentary that works really well. They do document the, the court custody case. And that's probably the first big turn of events that shocked me. David and Kathleen were, by the presentation in the documentary, some of the kindest people you will ever meet. And they are really engaging with Shirley, this woman who was accused of murdering their son. Zachary is born on the 18th of July, 2002. And he, so when the murder occurred, nobody knew she was pregnant. Right. Uh, uh, it's possible Andrew might have known, 
but uh, like none of the friends or family had any idea. It came like about four months later as a surprise. Yeah, like it coming out that she was pregnant, it, it wasn't a surprise. It was a shock. Right, and it was really confusing to me because I, I couldn't exactly figure out how she had faked a pregnancy and then wound up pregnant. Yeah, I I even thought that the mention of the condoms by the police was because I thought they were going to go a different direction there and be like, oh, there were holes, and that's how, like, do you know I what mean, I mean? Like she was. It's possible that you know something like that occurred, but yeah, that is a little bit, um, especially since they were pretty much broken up, right. You know, but who knows? It's not really, you know, it doesn't really matter. It, just, it was just a little confusing to me because it seemed like this, there was this whole big conflict over a fake pregnancy. And it was almost like, oh, how did that happen that she ended up actually pregnant? But she did end up actually pregnant. Yeah. She has the baby in July 2002. There's this ongoing custody battle. And you got to remember, she's also lining up to be extradited to Pennsylvania to be tried for Andrew's murder. But the Turners make sure that Zachary has absolutely everything he could need. He actually really likes the Turners and they are so nice throughout this entire documentary. Uh, I think it's mainly because the documentary is put together by friends of their son and it's easy for them to talk to these people that they've known basically their whole lives. Um, it's noted by the, uh, the court and they have the people that are, I don't know what they're called, but they're overseeing sort of the welfare of the child in terms of like custody. They're starting to make notations that Shirley and Zachary don't really get along. He actually seems to be better off with other adults uh, including his grandparents and his dad's uh, friends and family. So there's this one instance where they talk about Zachary in 2003. He has his first birthday party in St. John's at a McDonald's. And Shirley kind of shows her ass a little bit to Kathleen, uh, Zach's grandma, Zachary's grandma, and like kind of foist him on her and says, he obviously loves you more than me, so why don't you just take him? Now, all the phone calls that happen here between Shirley and the Bagbees, for some reason, are all recorded. And it's absolutely it's fascinating. The craziest thing, isn't it? Yeah, like they have all of them. Like somehow these people recorded everything. And I could not figure out how they have it all, but it is brilliant that they do because this woman, to me, and I'm not trying to judge her too hard. She comes across as a little unhinged as it goes along. Well, and I don't know about you, but the way that it's presented, at least in the documentary and, you know, anything else I've come across about it, there is really no question of who killed Andrew. No, it's it's not. There's There's no question at all. The um, only reason, like, there was this whole sort of, thing happening was because she had fled the area, right? Yeah, she had literally crossed an international boundary, and that made it difficult to get her back. And at some point, I believe 
I don't know if it's before the extradition hearing or like what happens, but at some point she does end up in jail and they have custody of the child. Yeah. Oh, you're right. I almost missed that. I, okay. So what happens there, and it is confusing because the documentary is sort of this sit down conversation and there's no timeline for you to follow. But what happened there is uh, in November, 2002. So Zachary's born in July in November she gets hauled back into jail because the United States expresses concerns about what's happening there. And they basically ask one of the federal justice ministers in Newfoundland to like to deal with her in a way that they can guarantee she'll come back to the, the, the U S. So they put her in jail and that's in November of 2002. So while she's in there, Zachary is in the custody of David and Kathleen until January 2003 when the same woman, Justice Welsh, steps in again and says, you know, again, she must be presumed to be innocent. That's based on their laws. Um, this was not a murder that was directed at the public at large. We do not use bail as a punitive measure. And we believe that she will conduct herself in a way that not, she's not a threat to the society and um, like her actions have not been directed to the public at large. So they let her out again in, in January of 2003. And, and interestingly enough, while, so the reason that his, that Zach's grandparents got custody of him was by Shirley's consent, right? Right. Because that was sort of a power move for her. Cause if you're in a consent agreement, which means both parties have come to an agreement, it, like a judge has not ordered it, right? Right. It won't reflect negatively like the court had to find negative findings against her. Well, not to mention you can also change a consent order. Correct. Um, and it's not the same as having to go to court and get a court order changed, right? Right. And so she was maintaining some power there, but she was also um, she was using it as manipulation, uh, like hundred percent manipulation. Yes, yes. However, <laughs> Andrew's parents, I mean, I, I, they weren't manipulating her, but they, you know, they were able to navigate that that situation better than I could ever dream. Anybody could navigate that situation. They were so nice about it. And they were just so happy to be a part of what was going on with Zachary without a lot of, litigious issues. Well, they didn't have any interest in, uh, they knew as soon as they fought, right. They wouldn't see him anymore. That that would be it. And he would go into foster care and like, it is, you know, I'm sure that they both practically bit their tongues off. Like during that period of time, I know that, um, especially Andrew's father, he was very stoic and very matter of fact about like all the issues that come up in, like you said, they had recordings of the, they're not just messages, like they're, they're conversations that they had with this woman on the phone about the care of the child, right. About the child having everything he needed about, you know, how custody was uh, going, how visitation like for the next day was going to work. They have all these recordings and he's absolutely just very neutral. Yeah. Not only neutral, he's kind. 
he's acting in the best interest of his child. And you can tell, like, like you know, these, uh, Andrew's parents were excellent parents and they were excellent grandparents. And I think that may have gotten under Shirley's skin a little bit. Yep, it did. It did a lot. So, okay, they had the incident in July of 2003 at Zachary's birthday party at the McDonald's. Around the same time, Shirley had met a young man at a bar there in St. John's. They had started dating, and they had been in the early stages of a sexual relationship. Someone calls this young man up and says, hey, I heard you're dating Shirley. And um, I just wanted to let you know, in case you didn't know, and this is 2003, um, that she's, she's connected to a murder in Pennsylvania and you should get the hell out of there. Run away. Yep. He breaks it off. He says, I'm not interested anymore. Shirley starts making threatening phone calls to him. And then she goes back to the good old, Hey, guess what, dude, you got to talk to me cause I'm pregnant. The man contacts this, the same Newfoundland police agency on three different occasions to complain about harassment. Now the harassment gets taken pretty seriously at this point because she's going to have to go in front of a judge for a judge to determine if her harassing this man violates the terms of her bail, which remember she's out on bail while extradition is under consideration and how it would affect her consent order related to Zachary. Because if Andrew's parents or Zachary's grandparents find out about this. Technically, they can bring it up in court as well. Because it's a consent order. Like yeah. on both sides, it's a con- they've both agreed to it. Yeah. So the RNC knows about it, but the man ultimately decides that he does not want to take this case public. And he ends up declining to file any official criminal complaint against Shirley. A constable there. He contacts Shirley's lawyer, and uh, he can't get in touch with Shirley herself. So he goes through the lawyer to like to see what's happening, and Shirley just denies the allegations. I'm just going to go ahead and, and like warn everybody that like the next part of this is the most shocking part, and it is if you're susceptible to being shocked at people's insanity, um, this is what's going to do it. On August the 18th, 2003, Zachary was scheduled to be with Shirley. When he was scheduled to be with her, she went to a local pharmacy and she got a prescription of lorazepam. For those of you who don't know what that uh, is, it's a beta blocker, benzodiazepine. Ativan is like the brand name for it. And she then drove with Zachary to... Uh, Conception Bay South, which is it's a town that's on like the southern side of the Avalon Peninsula uh, in Newfoundland. And it's also where the young man who had accused her of harassment lived. Shirley parks her car at his house in this little area. And she left photographs of herself and Zachary inside of the car. She also for some reason, placed or staged a used tampon on the front seat of the car. 
So the conclusion of this after the fact is that she was attempting to frame this young man like he had done something to her. And then Shirley mixes the lorazepam uh, into Zachary's baby formula, and she uh, ingests what would have been a lethal dose herself. She straps Zachary to her chest, ties him there with her sweater, and then she walked down to Foxtrap Marina, and she leaped off of a fishing wharf into the Atlantic Ocean. And she drowned, and she drowned Zachary. A few days later, Shirley's body was found on the beach by a couple that was vacationing nearby, um, and Zachary's body was found as well. Uh, it was determined by the coroner that Zachary had been rendered unconscious by the lorazepam and did not suffer. Turner's cause, uh, Shirley Turner's cause of death was drowning. Weirdly enough, that should have been the end of the documentary, but it's not. They talk quite a bit about a couple of books that you can read. One of them is called Dance with the Devil, A Memoir of Murder and Loss, which is by David uh, Bagby, who is Zachary's grandfather. Um, he published it in 2007. They dedicate the rest of their lives to something called Zachary's Bill, but also in general to bail in Newfoundland uh, and Labrador being taken seriously under the criminal code of, um, of Canada. And that means a lot of things, but specifically they want people with children who have been accused of serious crimes for their children to be considered in how they're released. Right. Because essentially every single thing that could have, um, that's in place, like, uh, you know, the government, the state, um, everything that's in place that could have helped Zachary failed him. Yeah. And the grandparents, like as nice as they had been, as um, cooperative as they have been, every single thing that they did for this woman, the mother of their grandchild, the woman who was accused and more than likely killed their son, it didn't matter, right? Because in the end, she, you know, and there was no reason for her to take that baby with her. No. Um, She knew that his grandparents would take care of him and would be happy to have him and, you know, happy for her to be out of their lives. And it was a completely selfish thing to do, obviously, but that was her point, right? Yeah. The reason why she did it was, you know, to hurt them. Like she hadn't hurt them enough. Yeah. So uh, she, They sort of wrap up the documentary by telling us a little more about Shirley. Um, She had a history of stalking uh, the men in her life. She had serious complex issues with a fear of abandonment. Um, She had attempted to kill herself a couple of times. Uh, At the end of it all, it was absolutely heart-wrenching to hear this whole story. It's set up in a masterful way. It's a great documentary. Um, it's been around for a while. It's 15 years old. The documentary is. Uh, if you get a chance, uh, I would I would recommend it to anyone. Uh, and I did kind of spoil the, the ending a little bit here, um, but 
it doesn't matter. It's still going to affect you watching it because of the way it all plays out. Uh, would you recommend it? I, well, I mean, yes, I do. Um, do I wish I hadn't have watched it? I mean, yeah, kind of, because it's it's heart-wrenching. I don't know about you, but, like, anytime I watch something that isn't, like, you know, from this week, I start doing, like, I automatically start calculating in my head, like, okay, this is for this kid that wasn't born yet. How old would this kid be? I did this whole spiel during this documentary. Because you don't know the child is murdered, right? No, you have no idea. And so I'm th- I'm calculating in my head. Okay, he was, um, you know, born in 2002. He's going to be 21 this summer. That's what I'm going through my head thinking, right? So it is like a huge blow when it comes up that like, oh, this documentary is for a child who was murdered by his mother after she murdered his father. Yeah. It sucks the air out of the room. I mean, I I do, it is a good watch. And like, if for nothing else to sort of further promote this child's legacy, uh, that he, you know, I mean, he was just over a year old when his mother killed him. And, this was a revenge suicide, like no question. It was a revenge suicide murder, right? I, I honestly, I feel like it's possible that Shirley had it in her mind that if she didn't take her baby with her, that nobody would care that she committed suicide. I do not think that Shirley is wrong. Nobody would have cared if she had killed herself. Nobody would have cared. But to make it matter, right? Now, I don't think there's any question this woman was suffering from mental health issues. Just sort of her whole dynamic. It was, especially for her to be, you know, 40-ish, right? Um, She was acting like, you know, a 14-year-old teenager as far as I'm concerned as far as her relationships go and it was sort of painful to watch now just because you're suffering from mental health issues like that doesn't you don't get away with killing people and murdering babies and you know doing all the stuff she was doing like you have to work towards not you know whatever's going to help you get through those mental issues. But there's a clear pattern of behavior here. And it's so bizarre to me that, and, and you know what I wondered? So after like, you know, I get through the whole shock of the baby uh, of her having committed suicide and murdered the baby. I wondered to myself, like, did she not know she was pregnant like, what was it, what was the final blow there that made her kill Andrew? I think, I don't know, I think she'd taken a negative pregnancy test or something. And and that, and she thought she didn't have any hold over him. Because she does tell him, like, that, that she's not actually pregnant, and there's this big confrontation that gets passed on information-wise. So I don't know what that was about. It was very 
confusing. And even digging through, and there's like court records you can go read about this now, um, just from the perspective of it's come up in the fight to overturn some things about how bail is given. But if you go and like look at it all, the end result is um, it's very confusing. And she's not the kind of character, she's not the kind of person you can get inside her mind very well because it's a messy place. It doesn't make a lot of sense in there. Right. And it seemed to me like, I I don't know. Um, now, granted, this is, you know, a long time later and I'm looking back on it. So I have like, you know, 2020 vision. But when I say like, there's no question she killed him, there's literally like no question that she killed him, right? It would be literally impossible that anybody else would have killed him. Yeah, she definitely killed him. The whole setup, the whole situation, all the circumstances. Now, if she was pregnant, even if she just pretended she was pregnant, and let's say she didn't know she was pregnant, I can't. I mean, she had to have just killed him out of, like, a spiteful, vindictive anger, right? I think she was playing the pregnancy card, thinking that would bring him back. It could have been either his reaction or her not realizing she was actually pregnant that happened. Uh, Whatever went on there was awful. To shoot somebody that many times in the face and chest and head, you're not, you're not, it's it's not like you just want them to die. You want them to suffer. Right. And I guess my thought behind like saying all that was I don't, and you're right. Her, her mind was a messy place. Um, but like, I don't see the end game there as far as like, um, you know, Oh, you're going to try and blame it on somebody else. Well, you know, the majority of the time, if that's the plan, you're, you haven't thought this out very well, right? I'm not advocating for people to kill people. I'm just saying, like, there was nothing about the circumstances of the situation that was ever going to point to anybody but her, right? And yeah. um, that wasn't clear uh, to her for some reason. But it seemed like it... All of it was a waste. It was such a waste. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. It's very sad. She left behind. From what I could tell, she had three other children. They're all much older now. The The boy was born in 82. Uh, the girl was born in 85. Um, and then she had uh, another girl born in 1990. So I wondered if Zachary being her fourth child, I wondered if it played into this scenario where she sort of had lost custody of her kids along the way and gotten custody back. Like she'd gone back and forth. She did send like one child to live with their father and, you know, at one point, the other two kids were living with a grandparent, um, which is very strange to me that you would fight for these kids, but then send them away. That's a that's a really weird dichotomy. Um, I had a lot of trouble understanding 
what level of like manipulation and and thinking about how you wanted to make sure that your doctor wasn't like her. Would never want someone like that to even be in my life, let alone be my doctor. It's it's really strange. Um, she must have, you know, which I don't, I mean, they call her doctor and she had, she was on her way possibly to becoming a doctor. She was substantially older than Andrew um, and most of the people that were Andrew's friends, it seemed like. And, you know, it is a a very odd thing for a 40-something-year-old woman with three children and then to get pregnant with a fourth child. Her getting through medical school to potentially be a doctor, like, it says a whole lot about her parenting. Um, I would have to say I only have one child but it would have it would be impossible to have raised my child and gone to medical school like at the same time because she was a single mother right it, yeah she, all of the situations were that you know I, I don't know if she'd ever been married before but if she was married she had been separated and for for all purposes she was a single mom and so to me, it wasn't like this. I mean, it's great for people to have career aspirations. I just, she, the the reason she was able to do that is because she basically handed her kids over to other people to raise, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. And so, you know, what was she thinking? I don't know. I mean, they called the doctor. Um, looking back through here, it does look like she graduated. So, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't totally understanding some of the references they make in the documentary, but that could be, it's just terminology I don't get. Well, I think that I didn't understand it exactly, but I do think that based on the timing and the fact that she was in medical school with Andrew, right? Yeah. But so, okay. The big age difference, they're right, in medical right. school at the same time, but he has to go and do additional training like residencies and stuff. Well, so does she, but what she ends up doing, well, she ends up going to work for these big companies with these, and the contracts are long. They described the one as being 10 years long and the other one was eight years. And she had broken the 10 year contract in order to take the eight year contract. So it's not like, you know, she was going to be with this medical system for a long time. So they were putting something into it. I'm sure there's training and like a, a, a nice compensation program thrown in there. Right. But so, you know, when you get, at, well, and I'm not a doctor, but basically you go to college and you go to med school and then you start this like endless 10 year program of like residencies. Right. I mean, it's, it's a long time. And, the, and so it's my, and now you are working and you are getting paid, but it's not like you could just go have your own practice. Right. Well, I mean, I guess you could like from a credentials point of view, but like you're learning on the job. Right. Right. And so that's the point where they were at. And Andrew had decided like, cause he decided he didn't want to do surgery and he ended up at a, uh, like a general practice family doctor with, you know, partners um, there in a small area in Pennsylvania. Right. And he really liked yeah. it and he really fit in well. And she had done something different. It, so, so my point is, like, yes, she made it through medical school. Yes, she had signed some sort of contract. She clearly was not happy with something about that. 
and then, you know, I don't know how successful of a doctor she would have been because it doesn't seem like she gave herself the opportunity to do that. And, you know, she cut Andrew's opportunity completely off. Yeah. I, you know, and that's the other thing about this that gets so difficult for me to understand is all of the resources and time and energy that she was putting in the things only for this to ultimately be for lack of a better word, thrown away. That's really disappointing. It was really disappointing. And from what everybody said, which they even addressed the fact that like, you know, we've talked about the past revered um, kind of, rose-colored glasses everybody gets when you're somebody's talking about you after you've been murdered right yeah um but they even address that his friends his friends that were you know friends of his in college friends of his in childhood friends of his in medical school his colleagues that he was working with they all say like he was just this genuinely good guy and they have enough video there, at least of him in like different situations, that he looks like he was a very likable person on the inside and on the outside, right? Like he was just a nice guy to be around and he had a good, uh, part of the reason why he, he wasn't good at surgery was because he had that bedside manner that a general practice family doctor needs, right? He was able to kind of, you know, sit and talk with a patient and it was more his style than like surgery would have been, right? Because you don't talk to people during surgery. But yeah. So he had this very pleasant, nice attitude. And they talk about like how much of a waste all of it was because he was going to be such a good doctor and he was making that path for himself. And I wondered, um, I don't know how much that could have possibly played into like Shirley's disdain for him, right? I'm sure, well, I mean, when somebody's that kind of charming, certain people can find that off-putting. But I don't know, like, if she felt like he was thriving and it, this, like, career that she'd put so much time up. From, like, a jealousy perspective? Well, right, because, I mean, she's, instead of going to work, she's driving back across the country to kill her ex-boyfriend, right? I mean, it's weird. And that kind of, like, the two situations don't mesh in my mind. And I feel like it was really hard for everybody in that environment to make it mesh in their mind, right? Like, how is it possible this woman is, you know, um, got, you know, she's going to be a doctor and yet, and she's breaking her long-term contract to, you know, come kill this guy. It it doesn't make sense. Yeah, there's it, not a lot of logic applied here at all. It doesn't seem like somebody that has gone through medical school and who has, you know, put forth all this effort. Because she basically sacrificed, you know, raising her children to go to medical school. And then she's driving back across the country. I mean, if she had been in her right mind, she would have said, oh, well, this isn't going to work and moved on. It seems like she could have had all those tools to do that, right? Especially being a doctor. <laughs> but it, for whatever reason, it didn't stick. And I'm dying to know if she was on any other drugs. Because you got lorazepam. But I'm dying to know if she would. And I don't mean drugs like street drugs. I mean... I'm, I think if she had been on some 
uh, like a mood stabilizer. Is that what you mean? Um, I think that this could have been a dramatically different story. Yeah, I think something like like I think something like lithium would help her, and I think something like Zoloft would hurt her. So I wonder, like you know, how, how does that play into all of it? Because they they talk about different therapy and psychiatric stuff, but they don't really get into the nuts and bolts of it here. And I can't find anything like that online about her, even with the people who dug into it after the fact. It's just that mention of Ativan at the end where that was the sort of the murder weapon. Well, nobody like sort of in the circumference of the, the case, the story, the situation, like she didn't have a whole lot of people that were close to her. And like the, you know, medical privacy laws are still protected. The reason we hear about a lot of things is because somebody knows, right? Somebody in the circumference of the situation spills the beans, right? Yeah. Um, A friend, you know, a family member or whatever. And nobody really did that here. Not to mention, I, I just doubt very seriously she was on anything. Well, that's all I really got on that particular case. I have a couple of other small items I wanted to run by you. Um, did you have anything else about that one other than the fact that it's like absolutely heartbreaking to watch? It is really heartbreaking to watch. Now, I that's that's it. I mean, it is on YouTube uh, to watch, and it is worth watching. Like I said, if for nothing else, to just sort of you know ha- uh, honor this child's legacy. Yeah, I, I I was thinking of it from the perspective of the child, and you know, also uh, there is a lot of effort put in by the family and friends here. It's a cool uh, story, as terrible and tragic as it is. Um, it is neat to see all the connections and the family and the friends. They were, this is a very tight knit group of people uh, who made this documentary um, in in Zachary's, like you said, legacy or memory. But uh, it's called Dear Zachary. Um, it's got a longer title, but just Dear Zachary will get it to you on YouTube, it looks like. And I wanted to talk a little bit about um, how weird stories can turn into, like, the basis for legends. Because, um, you know, this is something I'm, I'm looking into with other stuff. I have two of them that I sent over to you. It's kind of a weird way to end the show, but I'd rather talk about these two because... Uh, I don't have a ton of information about them. The first one's out of Florida. Did you hear what's going on down in Florida? I did. Um, This goes to like, when I say origins of legends, it's when, um, like when Ted Bundy first started to be known to the media as Ted, Um, that was a real birth of a legend in the media. He had already sort of been there um, as this unnamed killer. And then, you know, they threw the Ted name on him Uh, with, this case, it's speculation about this little town down in Florida having a serial killer. Uh, now, grain of salt here. The sheriff came out and basically said, no, we have an idiot problem. We don't have um, a serial killer. And I think he called the problem a wannabe gang. But this uh, made the rounds with a couple of different headlines. I'm just going to pull the Daily Mail headline. Um, because that's the one that like I saw first. It just says three teens from tiny Florida town of 1,500 people were shot dead within a five-mile radius in less than 48 hours, but cops rule out a serial killer. And then there's another headline right next to it. Is, is a serial killer operating in Akalawa? I don't know how you say this town. I'm going to say it again in a minute. In this tiny Florida town. Um, but it's 
in Oklahoma, Florida, I think is how you would say it. It's O-C-K-L-A-W-A-H-A. Two 16-year-old girls and a 17-year-old boy have been found uh, by police shot in uh, less than 48 hours. Now, this is about 60 miles northwest of Orlando. Uh, the first 16-year-old is a girl named Layla Silvernail. She was discovered alive on Thursday night, uh, shot uh, after being shot in the head. Now, according to this particular article, she was going to be taken off of life support. I went on to kind kind of track down where that information came from, and it looks like it came from a GoFundMe page. I don't want to I, say that like she's alive or go ahead. I believe she's died. Um, I, I feel like I saw a family member indicate that um, she was donating her organs. So, okay. Maybe that's what I was picking up on there. Okay. That that's actually kind of helpful. So that's Layla Silvernail. Now another 16 year old girl and a 17 year old boy, they were discovered dumped in two other locations in the same town. The case is being probed as a triple homicide by the Marion County Sheriff's Office, and they say it's an isolated incident. Cops have ruled out a serial killer, but they're not providing other details on suspects or motives. Um, so with Layla Silvernail, she was shot in the head and she was left in a dumpster near Forest Lakes Park. A second victim, who was an unnamed 17-year-old boy, was found Friday morning less than a mile away uh, lying by the side of the road. And the third victim was a 16-year-old girl, and she was found Saturday inside Layla Silvernail's car, which had been partly sunk in a pond. Now, the other two teens' names are not being released at this time because their parents and family have enacted what's known as Marcy's Law, and that gives the families of victims the right to withhold the name uh, from public documents. So we're not going to know their names right away until people start talking. Marion County Sheriff Billy Wood said in a video statement posted to Facebook that his team uh, were investigating how the trio might be connected. He said the major crimes detectives are working 24-7 to continue their murder investigation and to track down every possible lead. He said someone out there knows something and we want you to have truthful information and not rumors. I'm sort of skipping around this press release that he put out there. Oh, this does say that, uh, yeah, at the bottom it says that they have decided to donate their organs. And then a lot of past revered stuff about the victim here. Uh, just looking at this, do you think like there's any signs of a serial killer from this? No. Yeah, that's what I thought too. I just was shocked that people were. Well, it's really interesting to me because um, so this, you know, it comes up on social media that like people are like, and I won't. I won't say specifically, but, you know, if you just sort of see what's trending, like people are like, the cops are idiots. There's totally a serial killer here. Right. Yeah. And this brings in like this whole sort of like true crime, pop crime knowledge to the table, Yeah. which is like, everybody sees this and they say, Oh, it's a serial killer. Well, a couple of things. One thing is, um, all three kids were shot, and serial killers rarely use guns. I'm just saying. Yeah, I mean, it happens, but not like this. Well, it's it's not their primary method of, 
of yes. murder. That's not because it, it wouldn't satisfy a serial killer to just shoot a bunch of people. Now, you know, mass killers often use guns, right? Yes. Spree killers, mass killers. Yeah. Um, now, more than likely, they're going to find that this is probably the result of one incident. Like, clearly, it is prolonged somehow, right? Um, I don't know what happened. I uh, it, it is, It's stunning that it staggered the way it was. When the other young lady was found, you know, she's in Layla's car, and because she's found in the car, you're like, well, how'd that happen? Well, clearly, at some point, they were all together. I have no idea. They don't give any information as far as, like, were there any weapons found? You know, who was with them? They do they, indicate that the car was submerged in a pond. I thought that was interesting. Right, but she was she was shot, though. Well, yes, but what I'm saying is Layla is found in a dumpster. Her car was found with the other victim submerged in a pond. Right. And so that's but, weird. Well, it is weird. And so I immediately start concocting what scenarios could have occurred. Right. It sounds to me like somebody got into some kind of drug situation and they got I, themselves in a situation over their head. I mean, I guess that's possible, but these kids are pretty young um, for that, I think. You know, so the dumpster, I mean, she didn't crawl in the dumpster herself, right? Well, we don't know that yet. We assume she did not crawl in the dumpster to hide from whoever was shooting at them. And, you know, she had to have been in her car at some point, and then she's not in her car anymore. And then we don't know if the boy was in the car with them or not, but most likely he probably was. Um, I mean, it could be road rage. They cut somebody off in traffic. The boy gets out. He gets shot. The person chases them, shoots the other two. Uh, I, but, you know, why leave the guy on the side of the road and yeah, throw the girl it, in the dumpster? It, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it, yes, it absolutely could possibly be road rage, but that seems highly unlikely because you're not going to take the time to dump the bodies and things like that. Like, I uh, agree. Road, I agree. Road rage is like a 100% reaction and regret. Like, that's what happens there. Um, and the time that passed here, there's no information. Like, um, you know, when Layla was found, did they wonder where her car was? Because it was like a whole two days before the other young lady was found in the car, right? Yeah. Now, how does a young lady end up shot with her friend's car partially submerged in a pond. Well, there's a lot of ways, right? The most likely way, though, is she was shot and then she submerged the car in a pond. I mean, it's unlikely. Like ran off the road? It's unlikely somebody else drove the car into the pond. <sighs> now, they don't give any information. Not like, yet, no. If she was in the driver's seat or, you know, they don't say anything like that. But, like, most of the time, you know, she could have been hurt, lost consciousness, and drove into the pond, right? It's possible. There's a lot of things, but you don't typically see somebody, like, 
driving a car into a pond with somebody that's dying in it and then hopping out and going about their business, right? Right, right, right. Especially not when the owner of the car was found dead just a couple days earlier. We also have no idea if, like, all three of these kids were, like, simultaneously, you know, or within a very short amount of time where they ended up. It just took longer to find some of them, right? Because, you know, we just don't know a lot of this information. Now, I don't know what he was saying about wannabe gang. Like, I I didn't really understand what, like, maybe this was like a, like, some kids acting like a gang. Like, and so they would have attacked these three kids, I guess. Well, so the sheriff just made the comment. Okay, uh, I think CBS carried this. And it said the shooting deaths of two 16-year-olds and a 16-year-old girls and a 17-year-old boy may be tied to a hybrid or wannabe gang. Uh, And then it sort of runs back through the details. And he says that uh, the serial killer is not true, but that they believe the victims are friends and were together during an incident leading up to the shooting. They have several persons of interest that they are working up right now. That's what it's, that's all it says. Right. And I have no doubt. I mean, they should have several, they should probably almost know at least, you know, uh, an approximation of who did it, even if it's a group of people. Right. But it's weird that he's basically just making up a whole concept there, like a wannabe hybrid gang. Like I don't, yeah, that? I, well, like maybe, maybe they like one of them was affiliated with a gang somehow. But this is a town of fifteen hundred people. I don't know about you. I have never lived in a town of fifteen hundred people. Like I have never even. I I was looking through. It's small. Like, That's small. Yeah, like the smallest town that I've ever lived in personally, I think was like eight thousand or ten thousand people. And most of the towns I've lived in had been at least 25,000. You know what I mean? Right. And so there's two things that kind of strike me about that. One is it is a very small town. Why was there this gap in time, right? Yeah. The gap in time between like when the first victim was found, the second victim was found, the third victim was found, it may be like very easily explained by information that they have not released yet, right? Yeah. Um. But to watch social media just kind of freak out over this, quote, serial killer, end quote, like, I mean, I see why law enforcement is saying, no, this is not a serial killer. It is highly unlikely this is a serial killer. It's an interesting twist because I don't know about you. Hmm. Eh. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is the first time I've ever seen like it debunked kind of in real time like this. Uh, About presented, it being a serial killer? Like it being presented and debunked. Like this is a full cycle thing that's happened here, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Right I, in real time. I thought that made it interesting. That's one of the only reasons I'm, I'm bringing it up because ultimately what happens like this with stories for me is they disappear. Right, they do, and it's going to end up being tragic no matter what, but it'll more than likely be, you know, somebody that is associated with these kids in some way, or one of the kids themselves. 
Could be. So Thursday night they find the girl in the dumpster. Friday they wonder like where is this girl's car? And then they find the boy's body beside the road a few miles away. And then Saturday they find the first victim's car with a new victim inside. Uh, And then, you know, you're talking by Tuesday. So they got Sunday, they got Monday and they've debunked the serial killer by Tuesday, which, you know, that would be a weird scenario for it to be a serial killer. In fact, like it's not a serial killer. No, no. Well, just, I'm with you, but all I was going to say was the only way I could see that being a serial killer is if somehow the serial killer tried to grab one of them and was seen and briefly tracked them down to kill them. But you still have the problem of this weird thing where the bodies are all completely different. And that's what makes it interesting for me. Now, the problem is we're never going to hear about this case again, which is why I bring it up here now, because it's going to get solved and nobody's ever going to talk about it again. It's probably going to be something boring, as tragic as it is for these kids. But the girls in the dumpster, the boys on the side of the road, the other girls in the trunk of a car that's in a pond. She's in the trunk? I don't know that. Hold on. I, I said that, and I may be wrong on that because that's what I keep picturing. But I don't have any facts. I, to I doubt. Out. I doubt very seriously she was in the trunk. It's possible, but she more than likely drove that car into that pond. Um, but you know, I notice sometimes what I'm picturing in my mind is not what. Yeah, like, I'm picturing a certain kind of pond, and it's entirely possible that it's more like a ditch or more like a lake, right? We we don't really know. And so depending on that, if it was something somebody could have easily driven into and walked away from, that's one thing, right? Um, if it's a situation, because people just, they don't get out of submerged vehicles and walk away from situations. It just doesn't happen, right? I'm yeah. not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying like, When you're planning a crime or you've been involved in, you know, hurting someone, murdering someone, that's not the route you take, right? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. To go and and sink part of the car just to have to get out and, you know, deal with getting away from the car. And so to me, one thing I do want to say is you said that perhaps a serial killer would have, one of them saw them, right? Um, And I just want to point out that until, like, the killing occurs, like, there is no serial killing. Yeah, no, I was just sort of playing a little bit of devil's advocate with the idea. Um, Did you look look up the location online? You said Uh, something funny, which is why I'm asking. uh, No, I mean, I looked at the map that they posted with this article, but that's it. I didn't go and look further. I misspelled it. We were talking about MapQuest earlier. I misspelled it, and it brought me to a MapQuest website of this place. Mm -hmm. And so this town is tiny. I mean, really, really tiny. Like, uh, geographically, like, real small, according to the map scale that I looked at. Mm -hmm. But what was crazy was around it, it's, like, 50 different lakes. There was, like, Smith Lake and Bowers Lake and this huge lake called Lake Weir. And then there was East Lake Weir. But the, there was water, like, a, in a lot of this area. And it, I wondered, you said, um, I don't know what kind of pond it was, but that's what I had wondered because 
when I drilled in on it, I was like, oh, there's already water here. There's every kind of pond you can think of, almost like marshy area. Yeah, well, that's what, I mean, that's everywhere in Florida, pretty much. Yeah. Um, it does look like it's it's quite big um, from the picture that, if you look on the map of that article, it's one of six. Yeah. If you click on it and look above um, the box where it says Saturday at 1240 p.m., there's a picture of the water there. Oh, okay. I got you. I and missed that earlier. I don't know for certain that that's it. That could just be for illustrative purposes. But it does look like uh, a pretty large pond. I mean, as far as, you know, submerging a vehicle. Well, I don't have anything else on this one right now. I want to bring up another one with you. So if you have anything else on this one. No, but I am interested now that you've said we probably won't ever hear anything about it. I am interested to see how it turns out. Well, it's just one of those cases. It becomes a headline because people think it's going to be sensational. It, well, and, and this is a tragic situation because it's three young kids. Well, not young kids, but young uh, uh, young people, teenagers, right? Yeah. Two 16-year-olds and a 17-year-old. But the headlines are this sort of shock and awe that law enforcement yep. has ruled out three teens in a tiny Florida town of only 1,500 people being shot dead in, within a five-mile radius in less than 48 hours is not a serial killer. That's what is being taken away from this situation. Because, and most of people are saying, how could it not be a serial killer? And like to me, there's not even a single sign of it being a serial killer. No, I agree. I don't. I didn't either. I was just saying headlines like that. If you don't click, if you just skim it and you don't click down, you know that's how legends get started down the road. I don't. I'm curious how that sure. works in the internet age. So the other thing I wanted to switch over to was happening at the same time. It's just happening in Texas. Um, I don't know if you'd heard about this or not, but this is a longer period of time. That is still happening now. Um, also debunked, by the way. But the uh, rumors are swirling. And I have never seen this many articles, which I assume is why Austin, Texas Police Department is saying there's no serial killer. Um, but they're calling, they're saying that online that there's possibly a serial killer named the Rainer, Rainy Street Ripper. These are all rumors. It's all conjecture by people. But news outlets are starting to carry the story. Um, this is around Ladybird Lake down there. And seven bodies have been recovered from Ladybird Lake over the last 10 months. So people have started to talk about it on Twitter. Um, after a body was pulled from Austin's Ladybird Lake over the weekend, and this is according to the... Uh, San Antonio Current, by the way. This is an April 4th, 2023 article by Michael Carlos. Um, he's saying that social media is abuzz with speculation that a serial killer is on the loose in the state capitol. The corpse of Jonathan Honey, 33, was discovered Saturday in this urban lake. He was visiting the city for a bachelor party and was last seen on Rainy Street on March the 31st. Honey is the second victim to be pulled from the lake in a month and the seventh body discovered at Lady Bird Lake in the past 10 months. The Austin Police Department issued a statement Monday saying it has no reason to suspect any foul play in the incidents. Just the same, 
The deaths have fueled online speculation that a serial killer, now dubbed the Rainy Street Ripper, is stalking Austin streets. Austin has a serial killer, and I'm not the only one noticing similarities with men in their 30s just ending up in the river after midnight this early in the year. From a Twitter user um, who goes by Good Luck Chuck. Uh, there's another one that goes by Victoria, and she says, Austin definitely has a serial killer. All these deaths around the same area are not a coincidence. There are several other people chiming in here. Clearly, um, unless they are cut up, which is what a ripper indicates, maybe there is something to that, and it just hasn't been released. But unless they're cut up into small pieces or there's something else happening there, um, you know, people drown in water. It happens. Um, Well, I came to find out about this because somebody invited me to a Facebook page that had 58,000 members. Talking about this? 58,000 members. Yeah. Talking about the Rainy Street Killer? I I just went back to pull up the invite. It's called the Ladybird Lake Serial Killer or Rainy Street Ripper. Yeah, so this is like a whole thing. I will say um, the majority of the time, which I guess, I mean, 10 months is 10 months, but, you know, the majority of the time, uh, the path of a serial killer is not going to be this easily recognized. Um, And you know why Ted became Ted, right? Because there was a woman there that he tried to get who he told his name was Ted. Well, no, it was a woman he actually got. And when he walked up to her, the people near her heard him say, hi, I'm Ted. Right. And they went off together. And so that was like one of the first big leads. And that along with somebody else seeing the woman leaving in the bug, the, the Volkswagen beetle. Right. Yeah. Um, and so they were looking for a guy named Ted in a Volkswagen beetle. Uh. Um, but this is, uh, it's interesting because one of the, uh, social media users said, you know, it's not a coincidence that all that these 30 year old men are, you know, going, are, dying in the lake after midnight well no it's not a coincidence but it's also not a serial killer um this is what happens when people um are out and there's a straight line to water right i mean drinking and walking near water doesn't bode well a lot of the times especially after midnight and i feel like the uh the demographic there, it fits what you'd find. I mean, it could be men or women, but, you know, 30-something in a bar after midnight is not strange. Yeah, so here's what the Austin Police Department has to say about it, the official statement that they put out on their Twitter feed, because why not? The Austin Police Department is aware of speculation regarding the recent drownings on Ladybird Lake. Although these cases are still under investigation and evidence is still being analyzed, at this time there's no evidence in any of these cases to support allegations of foul play. With each incident, while each incident has occurred at the lake, the circumstances, exact locations, and demographics surrounding these cases vary. Our investigators approach every case with an open mind and objectively examine all available evidence. We work closely with the Travis County Medical Examiner's Office, which conducts a parallel investigation into all deaths. The 
Medical examiner performs autopsies in each of these types of death investigations. The results of these autopsies have not revealed any trauma to the bodies nor indication of foul play. One common theme of the drownings in Austin this year is the combination of alcohol and easy access to Lady Bird Lake, which has numerous access points. Many of the access points can be challenging to see at night. The parks in which most of these drownings have occurred are park areas that close at 10 o'clock p.m. and occur after the park closes. We advise the public to follow the rules on park closures. Right, which is exactly what I was thinking. But, you know, if something presented that indicated, you know, that they were found in pieces or whatever, like I would reconsider that. But, you know, I, I it's so interesting to me that um, everybody immediately jumps to serial killer. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that, that that's where people went. And I, you know, I always am curious about how certain, you know, rumors get started or, or myths or legends. And, you know, this article that I pulled up mentioned like a San Antonio one from last year, and that turned out to be not anywhere based on any kind of facts. Um, so I thought I would bring this part up where the police are flat out saying, as at least right now, they're saying there's nothing that links these bodies together. Um, the demographics don't even seem to be as close as apparently these people would like for there to be. But here's going to be like kind of my closing question to you. Is it better to have a bunch of idiots who drink and fall into a lake and drown? Or is it better to have a serial killer? They're both terrible circumstances, but I'm saying which is the lesser of the two problems? The lesser of the two problems is having people drinking and falling into lakes because while it's tragic, it's accidental. Uh, a serial killer is somebody who is like specifically killing people um, and you have no control over it. So that's what I thought. Why did we jump to serial killer? Because we don't want to believe people are dumb because beca no, it's because we, they want that. Like there's something so incredibly enticing to true crime and people like want that, like, kind of spectacle type of thing. And, you know, to me, and I am so dismissive, right? I'm so dismissive of all kinds of things because to me, I'm like, yeah, that's ridiculous to think that that would be a serial killer. And occasionally like something will come back and I'll be like, oh, I shouldn't have dismissed that so easily. Right. But to me, like not everything is like this big entertaining true crime scenario in fact without the spin put on it like nothing is it's all just tragedy yeah. right yeah i i don't have anything else on this one i just wanted to mention those because i thought i would keep an eye on them and see if those cases sort of uh move forward at all and if they do i'll bring them back up i um i don't know that they will it's, it's sort of a one of those things where I, I think most cases like this sort of disappear. That double homicide from last year that I followed, you know, it's now in the court phases, but it died off. It was hot on social media for a good two months, mainly because they hadn't made an arrest and then it went poof. Now, this is a triple homicide, theoretically. I assume they'll find that it's three individual homicides. I say that because... 
I can picture scenarios where it's like two homicides and a suicide or an accident or something else. Right. And we just don't know yet. But um, I do think that part of what keeps a case in, you know, the headlines as a spectacle is like the missing element, right? Yeah. And I think as soon as the missing element dissipates, it's really hard to just continue talking about tragedy, right? Um, because that's, that's really all you're doing is just talking about like what happened. People love to speculate and I'm right there with them. Like I love a good, you know, tale of what happened. And, um, but the problem is, um, like if I say something that's my speculation and then the next person who sees it thinks it's fact, right. And that's where it gets out of control. And so, you know, we try to be really clear when we're speculating about stuff and try and look for actual facts. And I think that part of, um, law enforcement being so bold here about this is they are trying to get out ahead of, you know, the potential that there is, you know, this sort of urban legend developing in real time because they don't want to have to deal with all the fallout that's going to come in their community from, you know, the allegation there is a serial killer when there's not a serial killer, right? And then as soon as that happens and they're like, but there's not a serial killer, well, then it's all, you know, a conspiracy to cover it up or whatever. And so I think the cops are just trying to, you know, stay ahead of it a little bit, but I mean, we'll see for sure. But I, I, I feel like we all have to be really careful in real time. And that's slightly different than when you're looking back. Right. Yeah. Cause when you're looking back on something, especially when we're talking like 20 years out and you're looking at all these unsolved, like foul play type situations, that's completely different than when you're looking at, you know, seven bodies and a body of water that show no signs of foul play. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. First of all, I appreciate everybody being here. Now, we're here for two, two reasons, because of a very extremely tragic incident that has occurred, but on the other side of the coin, a conclusion to that tragedy. As all of you are well aware, last Thursday, March 30th, we received a call near, near Forest Lakes Park, where our first victim, Layla Silvernail, was located suffering from a gunshot wound. She would later succumb to her injuries. The following morning, 
We responded to a location about a half a mile away and located a second victim deceased on the side of the road from an apparent gunshot wound. Then on Saturday, April 1st, my deputies located Layla's car abandoned and partially submerged in a pond about nine miles from the location where she was found. My investigators located the third victim inside of the car. And I'll go ahead and tell you because you've been asking me for specific details. She was located in the trunk. Now, I want to clear up before we get into those details, based on the interviews, digital evidence from her phone, she was there of her own free will. Now, I'm going to start off by thanking all of the entities. If there's ever a true example of law enforcement, communities coming together and a almost perfect collaboration to come to a conclusion in a week on a triple homicide is truly amazing. Those entities include the FBI, FDLE, U.S. Marshal's Office, and in my opinion, probably the best state attorney in the state of Florida for the Fifth Judicial Circuit, Bill Gladson's assistant state attorneys. OPD, my, my deputies, detectives, forensic professionals, and our citizens who are truly amazing. Now this one's going to come a shock to you. That includes you, the media. You helped us of getting information. My emotions right now are all over the place because I am so so proud of my guys and girls. I didn't do a damn thing, but they stepped up to the plate. And yes, you. You put information out there, and I'll admit this, you wore my ass out of interviews, you hounded me, but don't ever think I didn't use you as well to get the information I needed. Now, the investigators were able to determine that this group of juveniles were involved in committing burglaries and robberies, which they were referred to as a lick. Now, although we had out there that it was gang-related, we have nothing specific to say that it was any rivalry or anything to such that cause, but however... Each and every one of them, in some shape or form, is associated with a gang. Basically, simple terms, there is no honor among thieves. And at some point, these three individuals turned on 
our three victims and murdered them. Two of them right there. They fled the scenes, but left a lot of evidence in their wake. Through the cooperation of the agencies that I've previously mentioned and my office, we were able to begin compiling all of the evidence and finding these killers. Now, we were shocked and saddened by the violence as all of my citizens because we are shocked not only are the victims juveniles, but the murderers are juveniles as well. I know each of you in the media here and viewers out there probably heard us in law enforcement or even in community events talk about what is the problem. And I'm going to go ahead and address the first thing that I know it's going to come up. Because there are individuals out there viewing, and to include some of you media, that want to blame the one thing that has no ability or the capacity to commit the crime itself. And that's the gun. These individuals committed the crime. And what's the solution? I wish I could give you that answer because this world would be a whole lot better. But the fact is, society fails it. We do not hold our juveniles accountable. We minimize their actions. And let me tell you why I say this. Last night, I had to stare into the eyes of two mothers. It's not their fault. Because what I saw last night was two mothers who are willing to give their sons everything. Do everything for them and give them their own lives. But just like you and I, no matter how much we teach them, because I am a father... I am a father, and I cannot fathom what they were going through. These mothers and mothers across this nation need all of your help. Because here's what infuriates me. I've got a particular media who has a problem with putting photos of juveniles out. Now, we do it what the law says we can do, put these photos out. I put myself in the shoes of those mothers because I heard one of them say it. I wish I would have known what this one was doing and who they were because my kid never would have hung out with them. And to think and believe to minimize any actions that is criminal of a juvenile is a disservice and frankly stupid to think. We need to hold them accountable. 
and then hope that we can change them. I'm not going to be able to give you everything because there is a third suspect that we were unable to locate last night. But however, you will receive, you may already have it, the probable cause affidavit that tells you the details of the events that occurred. I will tell you this. I already told you of the witness hearing the gunshots. That is when all three were killed. The suspects were in the vehicle. This individual, who is a juvenile also, is who we're looking for. Now, I'm talking to the viewers. You, Some of you know him, you know where he is, and you need to turn him in. Now, I will get him. I will find him. And justice will be completed. As you can imagine... My thoughts are all over this page right now. Fighting these crimes, these type of crimes requires all of us to come together as a community. And Marion County stepped up to the plate. And we've been successful. Now, I know I've forgotten something. And I'm missing something, so I'm going to open up the floor to questions. Any type of motive given? Mentioned it. Robbery. Um, Strong words, sorry. Go to her first. I want to clarify. I know you said the suspects were in the vehicle, so are you saying all six were in there at one time? I yes, ma'am. That's correct. Different commission of a robbery of the three victims? Not going to get into too many, too many more of those details because of the third suspect being out. Sheriff Boyd, uh, Ted Williams with Fox News. Did the suspects and the three dead teens, have you been able to determine how long they've known each other? Short time. Sheriff, you mentioned uh, the gun. Do we know how? The, the uh, suspects got a hold of the weapon? Car burglaries. Car burglaries. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Ain't that right? All the gun laws we got in place didn't prevent it, did it? Neither will any new ones. Because here's the fact. The bad guy is going to get a gun no matter what law you have put in place. These juveniles shouldn't even possess a handgun. But they did. And I'll go back to you. Add your question. 
A simple burglary, as some people will say, but I don't consider anything simple when it comes to a burglary. The law allows me, I'll plaster their face up on this page, up on my page, up on media. I will hand it out if the law allows me because parents have the right to know who their kids are hanging out with and preventing this. I personally didn't speak to them about the arrest. It was immediately after the interviews in which I talked to the, those mothers. But really, they don't have a whole lot to say. If you're a parent, put yourself in their shoes. Holy hell. Panic. I'm scared to death as a parent. Embarrassed. Ashamed. What do you think they're going to say? All right, state attorney's office is reviewing that right now, okay? So I don't want to say yes and then it turn around no, then you'll end up calling me a liar at some point. So. What does, to kind of piggyback off that, so what does accountability look like for you? I know you talked about juveniles <laughs> being accountable for their actions. Hmm. I will refrain an awful lot on that answer to this question, to the full extent of the law. Okay, don't, don't take me wrong. I might be hard on people, but I also have a heart. And I've already told you, I am a father. But here's the one thing my boys know. Growing up, the freaking barber had my permission to whip their asses. And not only that, when this stuff came up on TV, I pointed them. I said, you don't have to worry about the law coming after you. Full extent. Because they took a life. Are y'all comprehending that? They took a life without thought. They deserve the full extent of the law. I personally haven't, but... Have we? Minimum contact. Minimum contact. I can tell you right now. I know somebody over here had a question. Sure. Andy? Do I understand correctly that the three victims were an active part of crimes prior to their deaths with these three? Is that correct? I don't want to give too much detailed information, okay? But let me put it this way. My dad was a fireman. Always said, where there's smoke, there's fire, okay? Let's, folks, don't ask dumbass questions. And Andy, I apologize. But really? Do I have to spell it out to you? What do you think they were doing? They're associated with a gang. And I've told some of y'all in interviews, gangs don't go to church on Sunday and then preach the gospel for the next six days. They're gangs because they commit crimes. How simple is this idea? Where are we losing it? And I know we're going long, but this is my press conference, not yours. Chair, if, yes. all, if all six were committing crimes, do you know why the three turned on the other three? I can't divulge that. I wish I could tell you. I'll tell you when we get this one. Okay. 
Listen, <laughs> I want to tell you everything. I really do. And since day one, I've wanted to tell you anything. They have had a leash on me like you wouldn't believe. Next. Let's get somebody new. Do we know the timeline of the three victims in terms of how they were shot? Was it all at once? And then... Hold back. You heard the bosses. <laughs> Do you know how they were apprehended? Were they hanging out somewhere? Where, how were you able to catch up with them? Do you want to? Go ahead. The uh, one subject on the previous photo, Rob Robinson, was in custody Switch. already at the juvenile detention facility. And the uh, Christopher Atkins, the photo, Did I tell him that he was arrested? At his house, <clears throat> that day, uh, right after, after serving search warrant. They weren't on the run or anything. They had, were they even surprised to even see you show up? Um, yes. They were very surprised we showed up. Are you able to make any statements as to what they said? I'll leave that to the sheriff. Mm, no, you'll get that eventually. We told you he was in DJJ. He was arrested by OPD the next morning after the murder. And an affray at the school. Oh, that's what I call a light bulb coming on right there. Remember I just talked about minimizing and holding students accountable? Our school districts, not just here, I'm not going to point out just mine, school districts across this state and across this nation need to quit minimizing the actions of their students. Hold them accountable. That's where the failure is. Do we know where the last suspect was seen? Do you want to get the last place he was seen? We're going to hold that one. Did all three have guns, or was it just one gun? And uh, which one pulled the trigger? Did we know that? All right. Some of that I'm not going to answer. Okay. Some of it I will. The one I will is the two. Confessed to shooting um, our third victim in the trunk. How many guns were involved? I'm not going to answer that one. I appreciate your questions. You wouldn't be doing your job if you didn't ask. Any others? Sheriff, is the third uh, suspect, does the public need to worry about him? No, the community doesn't need to worry about him outside of I want them to find him. That's what they need to worry about is locating him for me.